Shalom. It is uh, June 27th, 2010, and we're looking at the uh, study on tradition. We'll be discussing uh, Lesson 1. Uh, for those who have workbooks and are working through, uh, we'll be discussing a lesson after uh, the homework's been completed. So in preparation for uh, next week's lesson, uh, you should be working on Lesson 2. Let's uh, open in prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandment and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. From Matthew 15, uh, 1-9. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands, and when they eat when they eat bread, he answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received you may, might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 1-9 The classical uh, understanding of Yeshua's ministry is that he opposed the Pharisees because their traditions had heaped up laws upon Israel. And uh, Matthew 15 uh, and its companion in Mark chapter 7 uh, provide the perfect backdrop for uh, this, this view. The view actually comes out of the Protestant Reformation, and uh, from the Protestant Reformation, they, they saw Catholicism, uh, or rather they saw Yeshua and the way he treated what they called Judaism, in the same way they treated Catholicism. Uh, they see the, the, the traditions, uh, the, uh, um, the uh, works-based salvation, all of those things, they saw the easy uh, correlation between uh, what they call Judaism and Catholicism. So the Protestant Reformation created this view, and it's a false view. Uh, it's because, uh, in, in, in some ways, the reformers even went beyond that view, uh, and they where, where traditions and what they called the Old Testament law were treated equally bad uh, as just simply the traditions of Judaism, as we're going to as we're going to discuss. They saw it all as a package deal, where the law and the traditions all became equal. And a perfect example of that is ask the average uh, pastor. Uh, evangelical pastor, ask the average uh, evangelical um, Bible student in Acts, in, in, uh, in excuse me, in, in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, what the discussion is about with regard to washing hands, and they'll say it's the old law. They they treat 
they treat this discussion as if it's a, uh, a replacement, a, particularly uh, Mark chapter 7, a replacement. In other words, the old law has been done away. They, they lump the traditions and the law in one package. It's been done away with, replaced with a new law, a, the law of Christ, which is a, uh, which is a law that is, uh, is better, which is a law that actually brings redemption. Uh, which is uh, and all of the traditions uh, that were uh, that were flushed during the Reformation, of course, have been now replaced by new Protestant traditions. Um, do we sing a song before or after the offering is taken? Uh, do we stand for when we read Scripture? Do we do contemporary music or do we do traditional hymns? Uh, do we reject all uh, traditional modes of worship and have a new uh, form of worship. All of these are traditions, and as we saw last week in talking about in our introduction, man cannot be tradition-free. Uh, man has a God-given desire for ritual, uh, whether it be religious or whether it be simply the way we wake up in the morning and get the things done before we go off to work. The point is, man has, has a well-established background uh, in tradition, and if a tradition is taken away, uh, another tradition, a personal tradition, or a new group's tradition quickly will take its place. The Protestant Reformation ought to settle this for everyone. Anyone that has ever spent any time in a tro- Protestant church knows well that there are very specific traditions, but they're not seen that way, nor are they talked about that way. They point the finger at Roman Catholics and say they're, they're built upon a uh, religion of works, uh, they're all about tradition and not the scriptures, and yet one can say the same things for precisely the same reasons about many, if not most, uh, Protestant churches. The reformers, the Protestant reformers, there's, in their zeal against Catholicism, erred because they thought that all traditions are bad. Now, Martin Luther uh uh, was probably a whole lot smarter in this regard than, than, than maybe some give him credit. He really w- understood the issue of traditions and really formed and replaced Catholic ones with uh, Lutheran traditions. Uh, however, not all the reformers, and certainly those descendants of those reformers, were, were as, uh, as wise in that regard, seeing that traditions are simply a matter of consequence. They just happen because that's the way that, that uh, people treat um, their lives. Uh, the air of some of the early reformers is that they could, that they thought that they could be tradition free. It's the air of of most uh, most new movements thinking that they can be tradition free. If we can reject those traditions, then we can be tradition free. The seeker friendly movement in the United States uh, for the, in the, in the United States uh, Protestant churches for the last twenty years is a, is another example of this. Thinking that they can be tradition free. Uh, those who came out of the uh, the Willow Creek uh, 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 church experience, you know, it's the, it's the whole idea. Of we, we're going to do church differently. Uh, well, quickly, the differently becomes the standard. And then uh, trying to replicate that is what's, uh, what's laughable. Uh, uh, in, in, the, in the 90s, uh, churches across America, uh, seeing the megachurch growth, quickly tried to adapt some of those same tradition-free uh, models, which, in effect, created a new tradition. Um, Rick Warren, uh, 
is, is another example where uh, in an effort to do things differently, preach differently, taught differently, uh, and uh, people flock to this new and different tradition-free type of sermon and uh, and the result was uh, pastors all across America, the dirty little secret was they could join a club and they could actually get Rick Warren's sermons that they could preach themselves, uh, simply following another tradition. Uh, we replace tradition with another tradition. A little background on, on Matthew chapter 15. In, in your workbook it says verse 1. It's actually in verse 2. The word for tradition, uh, the Greek word for tradition is paradosis or paradosis. And it comes from the uh, the the uh, the root uh, the root for that Greek word is uh, didomi. Uh, it literally means uh, paradosis. Literally means that which is received. In the Hebrew, uh, this relates to the word kabbalah. This is the word that is used, uh, which comes from the root verb kabbal, which means received. Kabbalah is actually the basis for um, uh, the received traditions. Uh, it's the basis for the received traditions in the apostolic scriptures, which we're going to discuss later on in this lesson. Now, that doesn't relate to the Kabbalah as it's known in, in, in mystic Judaism uh, as coming from the Zohar and, and uh, other books of Kabbalah. That is a simply another, a totally other, uh, other, other thing. Unfortunately, people hear the word Kabbalah and, and, and start thinking things that they shouldn't think. Uh, the word here is simply a, a Hebrew word, which means a received, or and, and it's expressed as a received tradition. We find it in Proverbs 19.20. The word kabel is found in 19, uh, Proverbs 19.20. It says, listen to counsel and receive, and that is the word kabel. Listen to counsel and receive instruction, that you may be wise in your latter days. And the instruction there is not Torah, as we oftentimes see uh, in, in the Tanakh but rather the, the Hebrew word there is Musar. Uh, and it, it's something that we actually use a lot. It's a, it's, a, it's a tradition. It's a way of doing something that is normally a part of the discipleship process. So a Musar is uh, you receive, a, you receive a, discipline, a disciplined tradition or a tradition based upon discipleship. So here we see the word Kabbal uh, and uh, Musar being used together to talk about listening to your teacher, listening to you, to your master, and receiving that instruction, receiving that tradition. Uh, we're going to see when we when we look at some of the things that Paul said. This is very very common in a uh, in a master discipleship relationship throughout throughout the uh, the apostolic scriptures, and uh, and we see that this is a the norm in Judaism of the first uh, first century and uh, thereafter. The Talmuds, both the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, Yerushalami uh, and Basli, use this concept of a tr- received tradition in, in almost exactly the same way that the apostolic scriptures do. And so it's ironic then that the Talmuds support the authenticity of the apostolic scriptures. There's a lot of uh, attack against the apostolic scriptures, uh, specifically things like the Jesus, uh, the Jesus Seminar and others, who have uh, these, these critical groups have, have basically gone through and shown, they think definitively that not all of the Gospels, not all of the, uh, of the epistles were written when they were written, but rather they were redacted later by, by, by church fathers, and, and as such, they're not reliable. It's very hard for us to determine the original because, uh, because it was changed by the Christian church. 
Sadly, some messianics come to those same conclusions. Uh, in, in all of that, they're following really a non-critical uh, form of thought and logic. Um, if they would but pay attention to the Talmud and the use of received tradition, they would see that the apostolic scriptures contain some of those same concepts. And so it is, uh, it is in fact these concepts of received tradition. One of these uh, um, is one of the reasons why we can, we can authenticate the Gospels and the Epistles as being written by those people in that time, uh, particularly some of the traditions that are promoted within, within the apostolic scriptures, if you're careful to read them, whether the church fathers would have figured this out or not, um, if the church fathers had been uh, those that would be altering, have a tendency to alter the scriptures, they would have removed some of these because they're very Jewish. Um, uh, it may be that they were unaware of it. Either way, what you see is the original uh, does make it past that that uh, that gauntlet of the church fathers who uh, who we are um, uh, uh, so commonly um, critical of. So we we do see that the that the Mishnah, the Talmuds, support the authenticity of the apostolic scriptures because of the way that paradosis is used, tradition is used. Let's look at, at each one of these instances of paradosis in the apostolic scriptures because, and in your homework you did this, this is a little, it's, it's not a guarantee for knowing what something is. However, it is if, if you are ever going to truly study scripture, to learn what scripture knows, uh, what, what scripture says. You cannot simply go to your Bible software or to your, uh, your uh, bound copy of Strong's Concordance and read the definition of a word and say, well, that's what it means. Because invariable, the definition contains five different variations. Well, well what does it mean? And invariably, you're using another man's view of what those words mean. And, and to, be, to be fair, uh, uh, Dr. Strong uh, was not unbiased. Uh, Neither is uh, any other dictionary that you're going to look to be unbiased. The best, and uh, the best way to determine what a word is, is by context. How is it used? And for that, you need to read. Uh, preferably, you're going to go and read more in original languages than you are in English, or whatever your native language is. However, uh, even, even in context of your native language, you should be able to determine how, how, what a word means by how it's used. So let's do that. We're going to go through paradisis and look at each instance in the apostolic scriptures of the use of that word. The first one we find is actually in Matthew chapter 15, verses 2 through 9. Uh, why do, your trans, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? That's paradisus. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered, Yeshua answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Paradisus. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What's interesting to me is, first of all, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, uh, those Pharisees that came up to Yeshua in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, um, 
they did not come up and ask him this question in Greek. They came up and asked this question in Western Aramaic or in Hebrew, Mishnaic Hebrew, something along those lines, a Semitic language. They were not asking them in Greek. Parabasis was not the word they used. That was the word that Matthew used or uh, to translate uh, this uh, Ar- uh, Aramaic or Hebrew word uh, into Greek. Uh, and it is a good translation. Parodicus is a good word to translate the uh, the combination of kabel and musar, or received tradition uh, that is a part of a uh, of a discipleship process. Here's the very thing that these these Pharisees are bringing up. He's saying, "Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders?" In other words, we have a master. We have a master. We're disciples of someone, and they don't teach us this tradition. They teach us the tradition of the elders, which had been passed down. And we, we recognize that this being passed down, we saw last week in reading from Perkeavot, the, the giving of what is, what is now called by some the oral Torah, this passing down of a tradition, a traditional way of interpreting the, the scriptures, a traditional way of doing certain commandments that had been passed down. And they say from Moses to, to Joshua, to Joshua, to the judges, judges to the, to the uh, prophets, prophets to the men of the great assembly. And the men of the great assembly, of course, then we see these Zugot beginning uh, in the 5th century uh, uh, BCE. We see these Zugot, these pairs, these pairs of, of uh, um, uh, great teachers um, who uh, uh, fulfill the roles of, of uh, 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 Nasi and, and, uh, and head of the, head of the uh, Sanhedrin. Them, them being played out, these teachers being played out, these pairs. Now we get to the last pair, of course, before the before the first century, which is uh, Shemai and, uh, and Halil, who we'll we'll talk about today. Um, where does but where does this? Uh, so they're coming and they're asking, you know, why don't your disciples follow the same tradition that we follow? You know, it's your duty as a master to pass this down to your disciples. Why don't you do this? It's very important, I think, that everybody see that in verse chapter, uh, chapter 2 of Matthew 15, and we're going to see later in, 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 in Mark chapter 7, that the Pharisees are very clear. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Paradisus. They don't say, why do your disciples break the law? Why do your disciples uh, transgress the Torah? They say the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they when they eat bread. You know, it, it, to me, it's it, it's 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 shocking, it's part, particularly when we begin to talk about uh, eating kosher or eating according to the biblical model as it's laid down in, in Leviticus chapter eleven. The average evangelical Christian will immediately, uh, in in reading Acts chapter ten, they'll say, "Well, that's been all done away with. The law has been done away with." And they'll go to Mark chapter seven time and again, and its companion piece in Matthew chapter fifteen, and say, "See, it's been done away with. That Jesus didn't require his disciples to live this way. Why should we be asking people to do? You trying to go back under the law? Here, the question has nothing to do with the Torah." The question in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7 has nothing to do with the Torah. The question they ask is, why don't your disciples keep the tradition, paradisus, the kabel, uh, uh, musar, the tradition of the elders, that they do not wash their hands when they eat? Well, where did this tradition come from? If it's not in the Torah, where did it come from? Is it just made up? 
And I think that you should be very careful right away, and I hope that you're already seeing this in our study, and after today I hope you see even more and continue through this study, that you don't automatically flush every tradition down the toilet uh, simply because it has its source in rabbinic Judaism. Uh, if, that's your, if that's your opinion, and if that's the way that you treat everything, I, I pray that that will be something that will change in the progress of this study. Rabbinic Judaism. Uh, or what, what some call rabbinic Judaism, has preserved a people faithful to the commandments of God for over 2,000 years. Christianity cannot say the same. Traditions change. They're splintering. Judaism, through all of the various opinions, and the Talmud is an example of of uh, two Jews, five opinions. Judaism, through all of its various opinions, has maintained unity in tradition. Don't be so quick to cast everything off. Be careful to examine. And our goal in this study is so that, that we, as, as communities, we as individuals, as families, can determine how we should go about examining a tradition in light of Scripture to decide whether it is a tradition that we should or should not keep. But the Pharisees here are careful not to say, why do your disciples transgress the law? Now, there's some other places where they do that we see that they're using tradition, so I'm not going to give them a pass on all of this. But in this case, washing of hands, they define as a tradition. So where do they get the tradition? Uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, in, in uh, Sota 4b, it says, Rabbi Avira expounded sometimes in the name of Rabbi Ami. Just so that you know, if you haven't read a lot of the Talmud, uh, no one ever says something on their own. It's always something uh, that, my, my, that my teacher taught me. This is a virtue. It is a virtue not to speak as if everything that you say is original, but rather that you uh, modestly and humbly recognize those sources whereby you uh, develop the concept. So, Rabbi Avira expounded sometime in the name of Rabbi Ami, and at other times in the name of Rabbi Asi. Whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands as though he had in, it, it is as though he had intercourse with a harlot, as it is said, for on account of a harlot to a loaf of bread, Rabbi said. On that interpretation, the verse, for an account of a harlot to a loaf of bread, should read, on account of a loaf of bread to a harlot. But said Rabbi, the meaning is, Whoever has intercourse with a harlot will in the end go seeking a loaf of bread. Here we see examples of two Jews and, and four opinions. Rabbi Zerka said in the name of Rabbi Eleazar, Whoever makes light of washing hands before, eat, before and after a meal will be uprooted from the world. Rabbi Haiya ben Ashi said in the name of Rav, uh, with, with the first washing before the meal, it is necessary to lift up the hands, lift the hands up, with a ladder washing after the meal, it is necessary to lower the hands. There is similar teaching. Whoever washes his hand before the meal must lift them up, lest the water pass beyond the joint, throw back and render them unclean. Rabbi Abahu says, Whoever eats bread without first wiping his hands, as though he eats unclean food, as it is said, and Hashem said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their bread unclean. So where does this come from? Uh, where, now this, this, we, I don't want to go into a deep study of washing hands. There is uh, there's uh, uh, a lot to go into. There's uh, there's some scriptural basis 
for some of the traditions that come from it. Uh, frankly, there's also some superstition that comes from it, some of it, and, and the Talmud actually records both. This is one of the instances, actually, where the Talmud does a great job in giving us biblical basis for the argument. Uh, the last one here, thus even, he quotes, and Hashem said, even thus shall the children of Israel eat their bread unclean, is a quote from Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 13. And again, I'm not trying to convince anyone about washing hands before they eat or not, but I want you to see where this concept comes from that the Pharisees, the tradition comes from that the Pharisees come, or some Pharisees come and, and uh, approach Yeshua, challenge him on. Go to Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. And you shall eat it as barley cakes, and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Let me set the background up for this uh, passage before I continue reading. Uh, Ezekiel is in, uh, is in uh, the land of Babylonia. Having been taken captive, uh, this would have been uh, uh, taken captive in the, uh, in the 6th century BCE, where he is taken uh, uh, in the same captivity as, as Daniel and others taken to, uh, taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so this is the first, or excuse me, this is the, called the second exile. The first exile is the exile of Mithraim, the uh, exile of Egypt. This is the second exile, the, the Babylonian exile. Um, so they're in, in, in Babylonia for uh, a minimum of 70 years. The exile lasts 70 years, some stay afterwards, but 70 years they're in Babylon uh, because of their unfaithfulness to God's commandments. So Ezekiel is prophesying in, in the land of Babylon, and God gives him specific insights and instructions. And in this case, his instruction is that he should break, bake, his, bake the, his bread over his human dung. So let me go back and begin reading verse uh, with verse actually verse sorry verse twelve Ezekiel four twelve through fifteen and you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight Israel's sight then Hashem said so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I where I will drive them. So I, so I said, Ah, Hashem, God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. The Torah gives specific instructions about not using human waste and what to do with human waste. So here, in Ezekiel chapter 4, the Almighty God is giving Ezekiel an instruction that he should bake his bread over using fuel of human waste. If Ezekiel had done this, he would have disobeyed God's previous commandment. This is an amazing correlation to Acts chapter 10, where Peter is sitting on a rooftop in Yafo, and he uh, falls into a trance, and he sees a uh, a four-cornered uh, sheet lowered, and in the four-cornered sheet are animals of all kinds, both clean and unclean, and he's told by a voice from heaven, whenever told who the voice is, a voice from heaven says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter's response is, this is the same response of Ezekiel, listen, no, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Very, very close correlation to Ezekiel chapter 4. Where in verse 14, Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 4.14 says, 
Ah, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. Go to Acts chapter 10. Let's, let's, uh, let's compare this, this whole account to uh, Ezekiel account, to the Acts account. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. Now, it's interesting. Go back up at, at, while, you're, while you're looking at it. In Ezekiel chapter 4, it says, um, when it talks about verse 13, it says, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles. That is the quote, or unclean bread. That's the quote that, that the, the Talmud in, 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 in Sotah 4b is using as a basis for understanding that you should not eat bread without washing your hands. This correlation between Gentiles and defiled bread or unclean bread. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 through 28. The next day, they went on their journey. And this is the people who came from Cornelius. Uh, he has this vision that he's praying and it says, go to Peter and, and, and uh, go, go to this man and bring him back and he's going to tell you, tell you um, uh, how, how, uh, how you can worship me. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near, these are Gentile men, drew near to the city, near the city, Peter went up on the household, housetop to pray, about the sixth hour. So this would have been about noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while he made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at its four corners, descending to him, and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. Now, first of all, we see the word creeping things, and we immediately know unclean. Not a guarantee, but pretty good chance of it. And Peter's response should tell us this. Verse 13, And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Let me pause for a moment here. Notice that is never used, and by the way, the Greek words between common and unclean, which is an awesome study, sometimes take time to do it, the Greek words used here are not, uh, are very distinct. And the answer from the voice is, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Never in here does it say, what God has cleansed you must not call unclean. Very important that you keep that distinction in mind. This was done three times, verse 16. This was done three times, and the object was taken into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius, Cornelius had made inquiry for, inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Let me pause for a moment. Get this picture. Peter's got this vision. This vision, after this vision's over, remembering three times it happened, he hears this, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Never are we given this picture of Peter in his vision, rising, killing, and eating. Peter always refuses, just like Ezekiel refused. Peter refuses because he's been told what he should or should not do. Now he's pondering, what does this mean? He knows it's a vision, he knows it has a meaning. Now let's pick up where, where, where we left off. Verse, uh, verse 18 and they called and asked whether Simon whose surname was Peter was lodged there while Peter thought about the vision the spirit said to him behold three men are seeking you arise therefore go down and go to them and go and go to them doubting nothing for I have sent them then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said yes I am he 
whom you seek. For what? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to this house and to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. Okay, pause for a moment here. Notice, Gentiles come to Peter's home. He invites them in and they spend the night. On the, verse 23. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Jaffa accompanied him. The following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, said to them You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or go into one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Acts chapter 10. What's it about? And you you know this already. It is not about food. It is about whether man's tradition can declare another person common or unclean. The sheep being let down with all kinds of animals in it, both clean and unclean, we we assume. And from Peter's response, that seems to be a, a good assumption. Was illustrating that the difference between what is clean and unclean is defined by God and not man. The voice says, what God has cleansed you must not call common. It does not say what God has cleansed you must not call unclean. God cannot go back on what he has said. He doesn't take an unclean animal and make it a clean animal. From the time of Noah on, and maybe certainly, uh, and maybe possibly before that, but from the time of Noah on, we know what unclean and clean animals are. God does not take unclean animals, which he has determined and called unclean, and called them clean. He has not cleansed them. However, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. What's that? What's common? That is the usage. That is the, the bringing in of a tradition. This washing of hands is a tradition. This why do we wash our hands? Because we might come in contact with Gentiles. The whole idea surrounding bread. Bread and washing hands. This is the pinnacle. We wash our hands before we eat anything. But why does it talk about bread in the Talmud? What is it in in Matthew chapter 15? Why bread? And the answer to that is that it was the bread the bread of what was brought into the temple that was most focused in this tradition. The bread brought in was to be eaten only by the priests and their families, those who were clean. Anybody that was not clean in that group could not eat the bread. This commandment was carried outside the temple proper into all of Israel by the Pharisees, as a teaching, as a tradition. Listen, if it's good enough for the priest, it should be good enough for us. We should not eat any bread unless we're clean. 
Well, this clean and unclean is it going from its very clear Torah instruction became traditionally, by tradition, being associated with people who had been unclean. Second, third-hand uncleanness. This contagiousness of uncleanness that the Torah does not dictate. The Torah has certain certain types of uh, tameh or uncleanness, uh, spiritual impurity uh, or ritual impurity. Certain kinds of ritual impurity were contagious to one level, but not to multiple levels. Whereas the tradition carried it on that if I touched you and you touched someone else and they touched someone else, unsuspecting they became unclean. So everything began, whoa, very important. We can't be around anybody who might be unclean because second, third, fourth hand, I might be un- become unclean and, and then I would be eating. Uh, I should be cut off from the people if I'm eating bread unclean. This is a tradition. This is a tradition. This tradition is 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 borne out in in uh, in the Talmud under under uh, it, it, at least it's mentioned and the and the folios that follow give us a, a a good insight into them. But they're never fully discussed, never fully revealed. But in in, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud in Shabbat 13b and the passages follow, there's there's this mention of these 18 measures or 18 edicts. What are these 18 measures? These are the traditions that Bet Shemai imposed upon Bet Hillel. The disciples of Shemai imposed upon the disciples of Hillel about 20, about the year 20 before the common era. So about, about 14 years, or 10 to 14 years before Yeshua was even born, this big fight went on in, in, in Pharisaic Judaism. This big fight went on between the two major camps, the, uh, the house of Shemai and the house of Hillel. And the house of Shemai won. And the way that they won was by murdering or by, by having assassins kill members of the house of Halil. Uh, the, tablo- the, the Babylonian Talmud calls it a day that is worse than the sin of the golden calf. Uh, that, that there's a vote that takes place afterwards. This is democracy for you. You kill all your opponents, then you vote. But the, but the 18 measures pertain to, mostly to levels of purity, not completely, but mostly to levels of purity. Levels of purity that are above and beyond those are, that are given in the Torah. And particularly in interaction with those that are unclean. Example is Gentiles. When Peter, in Acts chapter 10, says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. The word common, he's pulling this tradition, this tradition from the 18 measures. When he goes into the house of Cornelius, and he says, It's unlawful for a Jew to be in a house of a Gentile. What he's saying is, What kind of law? This is speaking about a traditional law, a oral law. This is speaking about the 18 measures. All of Judaism was placed under this by a vote, a fraudulent vote, by the house of Shammai. And for and for a hundred years, for a hundred years, uh, Judaism lived under these 18 measures. And as we talked about previously in other studies, the 18 measures uh, continue to this day, uh, imprinted, stamped in Judaism by tradition, uh, even though the, the statement is that in about the year 80 that they were, that they were annulled and they were, they were taken back. But we can show specifically where uh, many of the 18 measures, many of these laws of uh, extra-biblical extra laws, extra-biblical traditions of clean and unclean uh, are, are existent in the Talmud beyond 
the year 80, and they're certainly existent today. So Peter's, Peter's uh, vision is about undoing a tradition of clean and unclean, and particularly with regard to Gentiles. Ironically, Sota 4b and the, and the biblical reference for why we should wash our hands before eating bread quotes from Ezekiel chapter 4. Speaking about bread, eating unclean bread, and being in the presence of Gentiles. It's about division. Division between Jew and Gentile. Now let's look at the companion passage of Matthew, Matthew 15. The companion passage is found in, in, in Mark chapter 7. And this is the one that's most often quoted by, those, uh, by our antagonists uh, with regard to eating according to Leviticus chapter 11. Acts, or excuse me, uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 2 through 13. Now when they saw, and they're speaking of some of the Pharisees that came to Yeshua, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Let me pause for a moment. Those of you who, who are familiar with washing hands before you eat, in a ritual way, you know there's a special way. We, we, uh, we pour the water over our hands. Uh, first of all, we wash our hands first, and then we pour the water over our hands, um, uh, left and right hand, alternating three times uh, in a special way while, while blessing God. So that's what they're talking about. This very special way has gone on for, for uh, millennia. Continuing in verse 3. Holding the tradition of the elders, when they come to the, from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Pause again. Why would they do that? Because in the marketplace, they might have been in contact with people who had been in contact with Gentiles. Continue reading there in verse four. And there are many among there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, "Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands?" He answered and said to them. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Stop there verse, at the end of verse 8. So we get some additional information in Mark chapter 7 that we're not given in Matthew chapter 15. Washing of pitchers and cups, which the Talmud as well talks about. Verse 9. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. And of course it goes on to talk about... Uh, um, uh, that we're not defiled by what we put in our mouth or what comes out of our mouth. And, of course, this is totally twisted by both the translators and evangelical Christianity in most cases. Uh, but suffice it to say here, Yeshua is not denying the tradition, nor is he actually saying the tradition is wrong. He is just simply saying, you actually teach someone to replace the commandment of God with a tradition. He's not attacking tradition itself. He's attacking, he is attacking them on the basis that they replace, 
They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. That tradition replaces, that tradition annuls a commandment. So those are the first two places we find the word paradisus. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This will be verses 1 through 2. This is Paul speaking. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 2. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Messiah. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions, paradisus, just as I delivered them to you. What traditions did Paul pass on? Where did he get them? Paul tells us in Acts chapter 28 that not only did he keep the traditions of the fathers, the same traditions, by the way, that disciples of the Pharisees were coming to Yeshua and asking, why don't your disciples keep the traditions of the fathers? But he apparently passes those traditions on. All of them? I don't think so. But certainly, the traditions were a part of his life. The traditions of the fathers. Go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Actually, first go to Galatians 1, 11 through 16. Galatians 1, 11 through 16. That I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was pre- preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. Notice here, he's saying the gospel didn't come to him by tradition. The good news was not a traditional thing, that he received it by revelation. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the, the assembly of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being even being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions, paradises, of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. He's claiming a divine, uh, a divine authority for the good news message that he's teaching. It's a biblical authority. It is the scriptural authority. Not by tradition, although formally he was one uh, who advanced beyond his contemporaries, being zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. As you therefore have received Messiah Yeshua, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith that you, that you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Received, paradisus. So, they receive Messiah. Certainly not as a tradition, but when it's handed, he, they received him as they had been taught by Paul. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold, to the, tradi- hold the traditions, paradises, which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Paul teaches traditions. Paul teaches it both by directly, by instructing them, either written or, uh, or, or, uh, or spoken, or our epistle, he's talking about by example. By example. Second Thessalonians 3.6 But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord, Messiah Yeshua, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. In other words, the brother has received a tradition. Paul is actually very, very harsh with regard to halakha, or that is to tradition, the way you walk your life out about those who are, they should be shunned if they won't follow the same tradition. 
First, per, first Peter. Paul's not alone. First Peter, chapter one, verse seventeen, seventeen through nineteen. And if you call on the Father who was who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the life, throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Verse eighteen, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Here you're not redeemed according to tradition. You're not redeemed by the things you received from tradition. Tradition is not salvific. Tradition is not about saving you either in this life or in the world to come. Peter argues that tradition although it may or may not be valuable, he's not arguing either way here with regard to that, but your salvation, your redemption didn't come by it. What we've seen, and these are all the usages of paradisis, we've seen is not all usages of paradisis are bad, but they're not all good either. They don't seem to give us a definitive view. Are traditions good? Are they bad? It simply says that we see that sometimes we see both Paul and Yeshua, and we're going to look at Yeshua here in a moment, but Paul and Peter and others follow tradition. Uh, we didn't look it up, but uh, if you read Acts chapter 28, the word paradisus is not used, but he talks about the customs of, of our fathers. We, we, we see that sometimes uh, the word is used in a positive way, sometimes it's used in a negative way. Let's look and see what, what Yeshua did, not by the use of the word paradisus, but by the concept of tradition. Did he keep traditions? And we see in Matthew chapter 15 uh, and Mark chapter 7, it seems that he didn't. It seems that he uh, opposed at least some traditions. Or maybe not. Go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 17. In those days, John the Immerser came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this, he, he, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were immersed by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his, his immersion, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We are Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed immerse you with water unto repentance, that he who is mightier after me is he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning, winnowing hand is, fan is in his hand, and he will clean, thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be immersed by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be immersed by you, and you are coming to me. But Yeshua answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. 
And when he had been immersed, Yeshua came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3 gives this remarkable picture of the immersion of Yeshua and this ministry of, of John the Immerser. Where did this idea of immersing come from? And why is it related to repentance? What is the gospel message? Matthew tells us quite plainly what the gospel message is. It is this, clear and unmistakable. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance. John relates repentance and immersion, that they go together. Notice the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they came to ask about or to inquire or to watch what John was doing at the Jordan, none of them make comments like, what are you doing, dunking people? By the way, it really is immersion and not sprinkling. (laughs) The way that we know that is because immersion is not a Christian ritual. Immersion was a ritual that began as a response to a Torah commandment. The immersion that we see in the Gospels is well-documented archaeologically and well-documented in the Talmud as as having its origin in Pharisaic Judaism. There was immersion for centuries just the way that John was doing it for centuries prior to John showing up. John didn't invent it. It's not a Christian ritual. It's not a sacrament. It is simply a a response to the commandments to wash after, after being in contact with something that was unclean. In order to be pure, time and time again, you students of the Torah know this. The Torah tells us, and he or she will be unclean until evening. And they should wash themselves of their clothes, and then they will be pure. They'll be tameh, and they will, then they will be tahor. Washing. Where does this washing come from? This picture being played out. It is a Pharisee tradition. That immersion, this change of status from being unclean to being clean. It's a Pharisee tradition that it should be something as a sign for return from sin to righteousness. There's nothing about clean and unclean in and of itself. The Torah does not tell us these are conditions that are brought about by sin. They can be, but not necessarily. One can live a perfectly uh, righteous life and still, throughout life, fall into a state of tameh, ritual uncleanness, and need to be tahor. In fact, to be obedient to God, you will be tameh sometimes. An example is is husband and wife procreating. It is a it is a commandment by God, and immediately thereafter, the Almighty tells us, "And you're unclean, and you should wash your clothes and your body." and remain unclean until evening. Uh, A woman's monthly cycle, God-given, nothing sinful about it, results in tameh, to which we should seek tahor, to be pure or clean. It is a Pharisee tradition that takes that concept, that Torah commandment, and creates a 
marvelous picture of repentance. Yeshua in verse 15 says, Permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. John, you immerse me so that the picture can be shown to fulfill all righteousness. Where was it ever prophesied that Messiah would be immersed? Where was it ever commanded that, P- that Messiah should be immersed? How is that necessary for all, righteous, all righteousness? And notice the remarkable response. Coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God, something like the Spirit of God, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him. And this, this statement from the Almighty saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This mark in history, this moment in history, this beginning of this earthly ministry by Messiah is begun because of a tradition, a Pharisaic tradition. Is Yeshua against tradition? Well, if he was, then apparently was not very aware of the Torah commandments. Obviously, that's silly. John as well. No. What they've done is they've taken these good traditions that point to the commandments of God, that highlight our need for being cured when we approach God. And they're using those traditions to accentuate the truth of their message of the ministry. Both John and Yeshua. says Yeshua does the same thing, carrying on. In, in chapter 4 of Matthew, he carries on this message. In chapter 12 of Matthew, he carries on the message and sends his disciples to do the same thing. What is it? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Immersing them. In Matthew chapter 28, what did he tell them? Go make disciples and immerse them. Why? Because it's a picture of repentance. Turn around from the way that you're going. Repent. Do what you've been commanded to do. Bow the knee to the Almighty. He alone is worthy to be worshipped. Next one I'd like to point out. And by the way, I'm not, we're, not extensively, we're not extensively going through all of the usages of tradition by Yeshua, but these are some of the ones that are, that, that, that are highlighted in this study. Matthew chapter 14, verse 19 through 21. Then he, Yeshua, commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed. Some translations in English, by the way, say he blessed it, or blessed them. You won't find that in the Greek. Because it doesn't make sense, we don't have no object in the way that we use blessed here. But in the Hebrew way of using blessed, he made a bracha. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. The disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that, that remained. Now, those who had eaten were, were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Why does Yeshua, every time we see him eat, why does he bless? And by the way, you can't bless the food. Stop saying it, you can't bless the food. The food is not to be blessed. That's a, that's a false teaching. That's a superstition. That somehow if we don't if we don't bless the food, that it's not good for us. That's a, that's, a, that's a superstition that came out of the church fathers. It's nonsense. The scriptures record, in the Gospels, record Yeshua doing what all good Pharisees did. Not to say that he was a Pharisee, but he sure keeps a lot of Pharisaic tradition. What all good Pharisees did, what all good Orthodox Jews do today is, before they eat anything bigger than the size of an olive, they will bless God. They'll thank Him. They bless Him. They made a bracha. What bracha did He make? We know what bracha He made. 
Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. You may have had another bracha for the, uh, for the, for the, for the fish. Uh, today we would. However, to say that if bread's present, that's where we see the blessing. Now, it doesn't say that he thanked God after, that he made a bracha, that he blessed God after he ate. Why doesn't it say that? Well, it's commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. Why doesn't God, why don't we see Yeshua doing that? Because that was normal. The Gospels record what isn't normal. The Gospels record what's unique and catches the eye. What God wants us to see that's different. What is he, what's Yeshua doing different here? He's doing what all good Jews of the day did. But you may not do that. Is it a commandment? No. He keeps a tradition. Is it a bad tradition? Absolutely not. While you think there are lots of people out there they sit down at their table. You know, they're, they're good evangelical Christians. They sit down at their table. Their kids reach for the food. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We haven't prayed yet. Nothing could be, nothing could be more serious in the moment of eating before you pray. That's a tradition. It's a tradition inherited from the Pharisees. Yeshua promotes that tradition. It's a good tradition. But it is not a commandment. It is a tradition. Luke chapter 14, verse 16 through 20. So he came to Nazareth, when he had, where he had been brought up, speaking of Yeshua. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me. To heal the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty, the captives to recover the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He, then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were up in the synagogue were fixed on him. <laughs> What's very uh, humorous to me, uh, maybe a little sad, is uh, is uh, or, or ironic, is this this idea, this picture that those of us who are who have been in Torah services, are well familiar with this picture. This tradition that we're reading here. And yet the average Christian theologian only knows it by an extension. Only thinking that it's an archaeological fact, not knowing that this is a tradition that goes on to this day. How many times do you go into, into the synagogue, into the, into the assembly, and... and uh, the question as it's asked uh, when you go in, are you, or would you like to read from the Torah? Are you a Levi? Are you, a, or are, you, are you an Israelite? Are you a Kohen? Are you a descendant of Aaron? Or are you, are you an Israelite? And the calling up, and the calling up to read, the Aliyah, come up to read. And here we see Yeshua. What's he reading? This is very, this is very poignant here. Yeshua, tradition would tell us, Yeshua read the Musar, uh, the last passage of the Torah, and then he becomes the one reading the, the Haftarah, the connection, the prophets that are connected to Torah reading. This is, a, this is a tradition. And it was his tradition, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. When were we ever commanded to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath? The Torah doesn't record it. In a way it does. In a way it says a holy convocation. We're going to look at that next week. We look at the Sabbath. But here we see 
as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, taking every opportunity given to him. Are you a Cohen? No, I'm not a Cohen. Are you a um, Are you a Levi? Are you from the tribe of, of of Levi? No, I'm not. I'm not a Levi. Are you a Are you a normal Israelite? I'm a normal Israelite. Standing up to read this place of place of honor, the blessing placed upon him after having read that the Almighty would bless him because he came up to read the Torah. Because he came up to read the prophet. He closed the book, gave it back to the Gabai, the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes, and the eyes of all were on, on the synagogue were fixed on him. This picture it's played out is full. This opportunity for him to speak the truth about himself is the opportunity afforded to him by tradition. And he made it his tradition. Why do we not have it as our tradition? Why do you go into messianic congregations and you read a verse from the Torah and say we've read the Torah? How is it possible that when we gather that we don't read the portion. It was our master's custom. It was Paul's custom, he tells, he tells Timothy. Why aren't we doing this? It was his tradition. What tradition did he get it? Where did he get it from? From Ezra and the men of the great assembly, passed down to the Zagot, the, the pairs throughout the centuries. It became a, it became a, a uh, staple of all things that were Pharisaic. It is the essence of the synagogue service in what some call rabbinic Judaism, a tradition. Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you, that in this place one is greater, one, there is one who is greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, first of all, what, what law were they breaking on the Sabbath? He calls, Yeshua says he's, they're, guilt, they're guiltless. So this is a tradition, obviously. But he talks about this, this occurrence where David runs in, and we, we could talk about how this is, whether this is permitted or not in the Torah. What I'd like to focus, though, on where it says, have you not read, in verse 5, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Where in the Torah does it say that? Does the Torah ever say that on the Sabbath the priests profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? It doesn't say that. So what is he talking about when he says, have you not read? This is a tradition of the Pharisees. It's an interpretive tradition. Verse 5 is a Pharisaic interpretive tradition that he's, uh, he's bringing up, showing that he not only uh, follows uh, some of the Pharisaic traditions in and of themselves, he also uh, is showing a, uh, a usage of the Pharisaic interpretive tradition as well. The next one's Matthew chapter uh, 23, verses 16 through 22. Matthew twenty three sixteen. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, 
Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the, uh, or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And who swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on, that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it, by all, and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And he, he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. This, uh, the, the Talmud actually records uh, much of the same discussion of, of uh, vows and how the vows are... are uh, hierarchical what is the greater vow but the focus here that I'd like to draw from in, in verse 19 fools and blind which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift Yeshua draws upon this uh, interpret again an interpretive tradition and is using it to show them the error of, uh, the, of the way that they account vows uh, and, and rather goes on to say let your yea be yea and your nay be nay um the next one I'd like to use is, is uh, Matthew chapter um, 24, verse 19 through 21. Matthew 24, 19 through 21. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor shall ever be, nor ever shall be. Um, here, here we see, uh, talking about, uh, this is Yeshua's uh, comments in Matthew chapter 24 about uh, um, the end of the age. He's speaking about, pray that your flight may not be on, in winter or on the Sabbath, understanding the hardship of, tra- of, of fleeing uh, Jerusalem, fleeing Israel in the, in the winter. But what about the Sabbath? What, why would that make a difference? And in fact, we see that a, uh, we're going to look at the Sabbath next week, and in particular the traditions of the Sabbath uh, next week. But uh, this idea of what a Sabbath day's journey is, we see that in Luke 24, a Sabbath day's journey. Here we have a reference, a, an allusion to the tradition of a Sabbath day's journey. Pray that, you're, that you not have to flee on the Sabbath. Uh, there's nothing in the Torah that commands that you couldn't flee on the Sabbath. And yet there's a tradition, how far could you, uh, could you travel on the Sabbath, that is borne out. An entire tractate of the, of the, uh, of the Talmud, a ravine, is, is, deals with the issue of how far and uh, to what degree can you uh, do things uh, on the Sabbath? How far from your dwelling place can you go? A Sabbath day's journey. So uh, this is a tradition he's alluding to, not denying or, or even, even agreeing necessarily with the tradition. He's simply, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, statement of fact. He assumes, however, that his disciples will in fact care about how far they travel on the Sabbath. That's, that's, that's the, uh, the statement being made. Uh, what we see with Yeshua's uh, treatment of tradition, uh, what we see as we go through each, and this was not an exhaustive, exhaustive study of tradition uh, with regard to Yeshua and his treatment of tradition. It was simply a, a cursory look. But what we see in each of these, and if we were to dig deeper, we would see that Yeshua has a, a well-developed principle of command precedence. And even though in the first century uh, this was not fully thought out uh, by others, 
Yeshua has a fully developed, a well-developed principle of command precedence. When we talk about command precedence, uh, we talk about uh, his ability to uh, recognize the, uh, the weightiness of uh, commandments. And uh, he's masterful in the way that he takes a commandment and uh, weighs its weightiness, uh, whether it's positive or a negative commandment, and how he, uh, how he places a hierarchy of commandments in, his, in, his recog- in, his, in the recognition of, of what God has required and doing all that is necessary to fulfill it, even when there are de- uh, com- what appears to be competing commandments. And he uses this issue of command precedence here in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7 to argue against his antagonists. Um, the tradition of vows were not completely, uh, were, were not completely and, and, and fully uh, uh, developed in the first century. Um, at least they changed by the time of the Mishnah. So, and actually later on, uh, uh, even in the first century, early second century, in the time of the Mishnah and before, uh, and the principle that Yeshua is is laying down in his argument in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7 regarding vows, it's ironic because he's actually actually, um, favoring, um, uh, or what he's expressing is actually being favored in uh, later on, as we see in in the Talmud, in... in, uh, in Tractate Nedarim 64a, uh, the Mishnah says, uh, Rabbi Eliezer said, one might suggest to a man as an opening, that is a method for knowing a vow, it's called an opening here, the honor of his father and mother, but the sages forbid. Said Rabbi Zadok, instead of giving the honor of his father and mother, let us suggest the honor of the Almighty as an opening. If so, there are no vows. But the sages admit to Rabbi Eliezer that in a matter concerning himself and his father and mother, their honor is suggested as an opening or a method for annulling a vow. What we see in this Mishnah is that, um, found in uh, the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate uh, Nedarim 64a, he's, he's speaking, he's, uh, they are speaking, uh, there's a dispute between Eliezer and Zadok, Eliezer would be a late first century sage uh, living into the second century. Um, this is recorded uh, around the year 200 in the Mishnah. We see it now in the Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Eliezer is arguing exactly the same way as Yeshua argued against the tradition of annulling of, of not being able to know a vow uh, and using that loophole of not being able to know a vow and the loophole of Korban to keep from providing for her father and mother from your own uh, from your own funds or from your own uh, abilities, and this was a dishonoring of father and mother. Yeshua uses shows how they've used their own tradition to annul a commandment of God. And ironically, now here in the uh, here in, in Nedarim 64a, we read that uh, the position of Rabbi Eliezer is that honoring father and mother is such a weighty commandment that a vow may be opened, a vow may be annulled in order to do it. Uh, it's, again, command precedence. Which is more important, the keeping of a vow or honoring father and mother? Unforeseen circumstances. Obviously, in the, in the case of Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, the, uh, the method by which to keep from having to give uh, and provide for a mother and father was, uh, was a loophole. But regardless, uh, the way that was done was using a commandment, saying, oh, I can't do it because I made a vow and I have to keep my vow. 
Now we see that no, even even the vow may be annulled or should be annulled in favor of a weightier commandment. Uh, again, this is uh, this is the command precedence. Yeshua uses it with regard to circumcision, with, with regard to uh, circumcision on the eighth day. Uh, God certainly understood uh, when He gave the commandment that all male children should be circumcised on the eighth day, that um, that the eighth day might fall on a Shabbat, and yet He give, gives no insight into uh, whether whether that should make a difference. Um, we're, we're told we're not told except for Shabbat. So the assumption is that the circumcision is a more weighty commandment than not uh, not doing certain things on the Shabbat. What we recognize then is a command precedence. Yeshua uses this issue, this this method of command precedence oftentimes in his answering to the questions of why don't you keep this tradition. And and uh, now we see in, in Rabbi Eliezer picking up precisely where Yeshua left off, and uh, it becomes the norm in the second century. This Yeshua's point of honoring father and mother, that being a highly uh, uh, weighty commandment, and it's positive in nature, uh, undoes the negative commandment of not of not uh, annulling a vow. Uh, so a weighty commandment is given precedence over a lesser. Weighty, uh, a lesser commandment. And uh, the honoring of one's father and mother was superior to fil- fulfilling a, a vow. Uh, what I provided at the end of uh, lesson one, and then also at the end of every lesson, uh, was a, uh, a list of questions, a test a tradition questions. Uh, clearly, Yeshua keeps some traditions. Clearly, he does not keep others. What, 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 is, the, uh, what is the nature how does he derive? We're not told how he how he considers a tradition uh, positive or 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 helpful uh, to one's faith, or how he considers it to be negative to one's faith, except by example. We can take these examples and examples from Paul, examples even from the Torah itself, and to determine whether a tradition is uh, good or and helpful to us in our faith, or whether it might be negative or undo uh, the very thing that God requires of us. And as we've seen in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, uh, sometimes a tradition can undo a commandment. Uh, So that's the first question. Does this tradition, in helping keep one commandment, obscure a more important commandment? And for that we have, as an example, Matthew chapter 15, 2 through 9, and Mark chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. The next question. Does this tradition turn us away from the commandments? And for that, we have uh, examples in Deuteronomy uh, 12, uh, 32 through 13:4, Colossians 2, 8, and Jeremiah 69. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy 12, 32. Deuteronomy 12, 32 through 13:4. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God, and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Here we see, in Deuteronomy 12, 
The idea that we should not add to or take away commandments. And the very test, the very test for whether we love the Lord our God is whether we're going to follow people who lead us away from the commandments. We should hold fast and cling to Him. And that's proven in our obedience to Him. Turn to Colossians 2.8. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. That is to plunder you or take you captive according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Messiah. Ironically, people turn to Colossians chapter 2 and says, you see, you shouldn't keep the, the, the commandments of God. They've been overturned. If Sabbath days are merely a, you know, and, and, and your, uh, your festivals, and your, those are just merely a, 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 a shadow of Messiah. You should instead grasp hold of the real thing, Messiah himself which I completely agree with, grasping hold of Messiah himself. But no one has ever seen him, at least living today. No one has seen him. Uh, no one has touched him. If you could touch him and you could see him, then maybe you don't need the commandments. But until then, Colossians chapter 2 says that they are the shape of him. That he is the substance, but they, these are the outline. You want to see him? You want to experience Him? You want to experience Him in your life every day? The keeping of the commandments in honor, in love of Him, Messiah, is the answer. Not to the problem. But more specifically, Colossians chapter 2 teaches that these things have nothing, these things that he's arguing against are not the commandments, but rather the philosophies and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Messiah. If you read all of chapter 2 of Colossians, you see clearly that the discussion is not about the Torah, but about those who would annul the Torah by tradition. The very tradition undoes the commandments. That's the question. And the question, the test of tradition question is, does this tradition turn us away from the commandments? I would argue and we're going to see this in Lesson 3 of this uh, study, I would argue that Christianity, uh, all branches of Christianity, has a tradition that leads people away from the commandments of God. It doesn't mean that everything that uh, uh, Christianity does is wrong. But the point is, that tradition is a tradition that should not be followed. Jeremiah 16:19. O Hashem, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. My Colossians 2, that plunder you and take you captive philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men. The Gentiles, not the Jews. The Gentiles will come and, and say, our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Does this tradition lead you away from the commandments of God? If it is, deny it. Refuse it. The next question. Does this tradition deny Yeshua as Messiah? 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Yeshua is the Messiah? 
He is anti-Messiah who denies the Father and the Son. That's the question. Does this tradition deny Yeshua as the Messiah? If it does, reject it. Refuse it. Acts chapter 10, 28 and 34 through 35. Romans 14, 1 through 13. Galatians 3, 28 and Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, 7. The question, the tested tradition question is, does this tradition cause division between Jew and Gentile? In Acts chapter 28, Peter, as we've read, said, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Does the tradition you keep separate between Jew and Gentile? Is the tradition that you're considering, does it separate between Jew and Gentile? Verse 34 of Acts 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. In every nation, those who fear him and keep his commandments do not separate between Jew and Gentile. Does this tradition separate, cause a division between Jew and Gentile? Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. What doubtful things? Most people read uh, Romans 14 and think that it's speaking of Sabbath or eating according to the, uh, the, the requirements of Leviticus 11. And they think that those are doubtful things. But those are scripture. Those aren't doubtful things. The doubtful things is the tradition. Verse 2, for one believes he might eat all things, but he who eats only vegetables, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Each, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eat to the Lord. He who gives God thanks, for he give God thank, gives God thanks. He who does not eat, to the Lord. He does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, wherever we live, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Messiah died and rose again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of Messiah. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. What is Romans 14 speaking about? It's speaking about traditions. Both traditions that might lead people to the, what, what appear to be traditional traditions or uh, Judaism's traditions or things that maybe are not Judaism's traditions. Why are we doing what we do? Is it out of love? For God first and then also for our brother? That's the point. Not whether we should keep the Sabbath or not. That's a commandment. But how we keep the Sabbath. 
It's not whether we should eat according to Leviticus 11. That's a commandment. But how it is, and whether we judge others that don't, that don't keep the same tradition that we keep. The doubtful things, the disputable things, are not the commandments. The disputable things are the traditions. Do your traditions separate between Jew and Gentile? Is the tradition you're considering a separation between Jew and Gentile? A division? If so, it should be rejected. Go to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Messiah. Does your tradition, or the tradition you're considering, does it make a division between Jew and Gentile? Ephesians 11, excuse me, Ephesians 2.11 through 3.7. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off, you Gentiles, but have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. So he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the wall, the sorreg, the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments and contained in ordinances, so that as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And, in, and he came and preached peace to, who, to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and to, you, and to those who were near, you Jews. For through him... We have, been, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, with Israel, and members of the household of God. Let me stop for a moment. Those that teach that God has two families, those that teach that is, there's Israel and then there's the congregation of Messiah, are in error. And that's what this verse says. Fellow citizens with, fellow citizens with the Holy Ones and members of the household of God. Families. We are a family. Having been, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Yeshua Messiah himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah, Yeshua, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which was, of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Messiah, which is in other ages, was, with, which in other made ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Messiah through the gospel, through the good news, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Does your tradition, does the tradition you're considering cause a division between Jew and Gentile? In the first century, there was a division. The division was prompted by 
a belief that Gentiles were unclean. Peter dealt with that tradition. Peter and the other apostles had a difficult time wrapping their mind around it. We read of Peter in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 10 and 11, and then we read again in Galatians uh, how Peter, even after the Lord told him clearly that the Gentiles were to be accepted, that he still has a difficulty. How hard it was for them to undo this tradition built upon these 18, uh, these 18 edicts, these 18 measures that Gentiles were unclean and that contact with them might render other things unclean and other people unclean to the third and fourth degree. Beloved, there is a movement today that mirrors the problem in Acts. A movement that says that Jew and Gentile have different responsibilities under God. That Jew and Gentile have different missions. Beloved, there is only one family of God. There is only one people of God. It is the people, Israel. Gentiles, you have been joined to Israel. The responsibilities, the blessings of Israel are afforded to those who have been joined by Messiah to the family of God, to Israel, to the commonwealth, to the common citizenship. That's the language of Ephesians 2. Citizenship. Gentiles are given citizenship in the family and in the commonwealth, in the nation of King Messiah, Israel. The covenants and the promises are afforded only because Messiah has joined you to Israel. Those that teach something different are causing a division between Jew and Gentile. It has a very bad outcome, as we've seen in the second century and history that follows. Let us not make that same mistake. Does the tradition you have, or the tradition that you are considering, cause a division between Jew and Gentile? The next question, does this tradition, or rejecting of this tradition, make us distinct, separate from greater Israel? Romans 11.18 and verses 24 through 29. Romans 11.18 says, Do not boast against the, against the branches. Speaking, of, speaking to those who have been grafted in, Gentiles grafted into to Israel. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. If you are not Israel by birth, you've been grafted in by the work of Messiah then be very, very careful about your boasting. Be very careful about what you say about Israel. Because let me tell you, without a healthy root, there are no branches. Everything that you do should be in consideration, out of love for the Father, but in consideration for your family for Israel. Verse 24. For if you who were cut out of the olive tree, which is by wild, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, 
cultivated olive trees, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted in by their own, into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will cast away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be revoked. Are you trying to make yourself distinct from greater Israel? By this tradition, or by the tradition you're considering, are you reject or rejecting? Is it to make yourself distinct from greater Israel? And the last question. If you can repeat, if you can say no to all the previous questions, the last question. Does this tradition unnecessarily burden us in, or in other words, are there other ways to keep the commandments in question? If you can say no to all the others and you get this far, is the condition, is the tradition you're keeping or the one you're considering, is it an unnecessary burden? Matthew 11.30 and chapter 23 verse 2 through 5. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Chapter 23, verse 2. Saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge in the borders of their garments. And Luke 11.46 Woe to you also lawyers for you load men with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. We'll be going through each of these test of tradition questions uh, as we do our following lessons. Uh, the scripture references here are, 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 are simply here as, as something for you to consider. Certainly these aren't all the questions you might have with regard to testing a tradition. But these are good questions, and it appears that we have good biblical basis for questioning to either accept or reject a tradition. In summary, Yeshua and his disciples were not against tradition. Tradition played an important role, as we've seen in Yeshua's ministry. However, traditions that obscure the commandments and place a higher priority on ritual traditions over compassion and love were deal-breakers for our Master and for his first disciples. Yeshua taught a command precedence in regard to the traditions. And in all things, remember the character of Hashem. Exodus 34.5 says, Now Hashem descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Hashem. And Hashem passed before him and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving and iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the father, of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped.
Our prayer focus for this lesson one was from the Shakarit, the morning service, the Akida section, the binding of Isaac. Master of all worlds, not in the merit of our righteousness do we cast our supplication before you, but in the merit of your abundant mercy. What are we? What is our life? What is our kindness? What is our righteousness? What is our salvation? What is our strength? What is our might? What can we say before you, Adonai, our God, and God of our forefathers? Are not the heroes like nothing before you? The famous as if they had never existed? The wise as if devoid of wisdom? And the perceptive as if devoid of intelligence? For most of their deeds are desolate, and the days of their lives are empty before you. The preeminence of man over beast is non-existent, for all is vain. But we are your people, members of your covenant, children of Abraham, your beloved, to whom you took an oath at Mount Moriah, the offspring of Isaac, his only son, who is bound atop the altar, the community of Yaakov, your firstborn son, who because of the love with which you adorned him, and the joy with which you delighted in him, you named him Yisrael and Yeshuaim. We thank you, O Adonai our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers, for we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Shalom. Thank you.